we'll be reading from chapter 9 of the book of Nehemiah. So chapter 9, starting verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. 
So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Um, our next reading is from the New Testament. Uh, so the letter of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. So 1 John chapter 1, starting from verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Heavenly Father, it is a good thing that in your word you speak harsh, uh, hard words. You speak hard words for us to hear to help us reflect on the state of our own hearts and the state of our world and the state of our lives. Father, this word is from long ago, but we pray that by your spirit you would help us to see how it resonates even to this day. We ask for your spirit's help to see Jesus from this passage, see how it points forward to him to bring our confessions of sins with assurance and gladness to you. So, Father, we pray that you'll bless us this morning as we hear this word. Help me to speak clearly from this as I ought, for we ask all of this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, friends, as we head into 2023, the new year is well underway now, and there's a question that I think we would do well to answer. Uh, A question probably not many of us thought of uh, as we woke up last Sunday, uh, New Year's Day, a question I bet we haven't been thinking about even for the last seven days. Here's the question. You ready? Are you like Donald Trump? (laughs) I bet you didn't see that one coming. How like Donald Trump are you? Right? Not in his brashness, not in his ego, or that he's a billionaire former president of the United States. No one here like that. No? Okay. But are you like Donald Trump when it comes to confession of your sins? Here's why I ask. Back in 2015, when Trump was running for president of the United States, he mentioned that he believed himself to be a Christian. That took one of the reporters he was interviewing, but he was interviewing him by surprise, and the reporter asked if he had ever asked forgiveness from God, to which he replied, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, later, he would clarify that he would indeed be asking God for forgiveness, but he qualified that by saying, I will be asking for forgiveness, but hopefully I won't have to be asking for much forgiveness. Now, leaving aside the question of whether Trump is a Christian or not, let's just park that way over there. Uh, I want to ask today if you are like Donald Trump in that sentiment. If you're a Christian here, as you think about your Christian walk, What is the state of your confession life? How often have you prayed for an extended period of time properly a prayer confessing your sins? Confession, the act of speaking out loud, the specific and many ways we have sinned and rebelled against God, whether we have intentionally sinned or sinned out of neglect as we prayed in that prayer together, How often are we in the practice of praying a confession of sin? I'm guessing pretty low. Would that be right? Yeah, I'm guessing pretty low. Perhaps it's low because we're actually more like Donald Trump than we think. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Uh, There's a pridefulness which makes us think we're good enough and not in need of forgiveness or because... We don't care enough about our sins, that we don't feel the need to seek forgiveness. Perhaps it's low because of a sense of shame that we feel. That if we approach God again and again 
and again, with the same, usually with the same sin to confess, that we're afraid he may change the way he looks at us as unworthy of his love or worse, and he might take back our salvation. Perhaps it's low because we actually don't fear God. We fear man more. And so when we're thinking about our sin, we're thinking more about sin's impact on other people and we're thinking less about how sin impacts God. So confession in our lives becomes neglected. It falls by the wayside. And that comes with a few negative outcomes. Uh, First, we begin to inoculate ourselves uh, from our guilt. We know we've done bad, but we become professionals at sweeping it under the rug and forgetting about it. It it doesn't bother us anymore. We sin, yeah, I know I sin. Okay, just just pop pop it away. I don't want to think about it. Or, again, as I said, we focus more on our sin's impact on others and we forget how our sin impacts our relationship with God. Uh, Another negative outcome is that we don't ignore it, we don't sweep it under the carpet, but we don't confess it because we're afraid and we live with this constant undercurrent of guilt. Unconfessed and undealt with, slowly gnawing away at us. We need to go to God with it all, but we're just not sure. So whatever is at the root of our lack of confession, whether it's pride or fear, we end up not confessing our sins. So I wanted to help, you guys, help us all to work out the question, answer the question, are we like Donald Trump? That's still worth answering. But as we go into our passage as well, there is another question for us today. As we think in particular about our lack of confession. The question is this, what makes it safe for us to go to God with our confessions? If pride causes us to not confess, then what truths do we need to take to heart? If fear causes us to not confess, then what safety and security are given to us? What is it about God that strikes down the prideful heart and reassures the fearful? That's where we're going today. Right, so we're at point one in the outline, and it's going to be pretty short. Uh, I just want to flag a couple of things that we need to see. Right? So if you've got your passage there, uh, we're going to glance over this uh, the first few verses. Uh, first, I want you to notice the timing of all this in verse one. Last week, we started with the new year, not only for us here today, but also actually for Israel. It was the start of their new year in chapter eight, when they gathered and feasted and celebrated and held the Feast of Booths, or I'm pitching those little tents to sleep out in. Uh, now we're a couple of weeks later. You notice in verse one, we are the 24th day of that month. And this time the people regather, but it's not in celebration. See how they look in verse 1. They are fasting. They are wearing sackcloth and pouring soil, earth, on their heads. This is the posture of guilt and grieving and mourning. In verse 2, their gathering has no foreigners inside. This is not an evangelistic meeting. This is a gathering just for Israelites. It's a time of confession of their sins. You see in verse 3 that they're reading from the book of the law, and that goes for about three hours. And then for another three hours, they're confessing their sins and worshipping God. It's a long day of hearing God's word and responding to it in mournful prayer and solemn and serious songs. 
And then in verse 4 to 5, a bunch of Levites cry out to God and begin our prayer, calling everyone to attention in verse 5. So read again with me, verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. A neat little doxology, and then the prayer of confession here in Nehemiah begins. The first part of the prayer outlines the story so far. So again, remember from last week, here it is up on the screen. You can see in verses 6 to 15 that it begins with praise to God as the creator, right, of all things. This is is really interesting. This is really interesting that they begin their prayer of confession, uh, and their, their prayer of confession doesn't begin in the present, It doesn't begin with the things that they have presently done. It starts all the way back at the beginning of the story. Imagine if my kids are having an argument because, you know, school holidays are here and we're halfway through, only halfway through, and they're getting on each other's nerves and they're beginning to yell at each other and whinge and complain and I come in and then say, okay, tell me what's going on, start at the beginning. And then Jaden over there says, okay, dad, well, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. I'd probably smack him in the head and tell him to get on with it. Now, why does this prayer start with creation? Well, stick with me. We'll answer that in just a second. Notice in verse 7, the prayer moves to Abram, uh, later known as Abraham, who God called and tested and gave promises to. Those three massive promises in Genesis chapter 12, reiterated again in Genesis 15, a promise of a big nation from his family, a land to call their own, blessings to flow through his family to the world. And God kept those promises. Then it moves in verse 9 to Egypt and the Exodus, how God rescued his people out of slavery, how in verse 11 he divided the Red Sea and his people escaped through it on dry land, how in verse 12 they were led by God through the wilderness with the pillar of cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night, how in verse 13 he gave them the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all that rest. In verse 15, how he provided them with food and water in the desert. And this prayer, you can see, is praying their story. This long retelling of Israel's history all the way from creation to Abraham to the Exodus, highlighting how gracious God has been. You can see that in all the verbs, all the action words in this section. Have a look at verse 6. God made the heavens and the earth. End of verse 6. You preserve them all. Uh, Verse 7, you chose Abraham. Verse 8, you found his heart faithful. Verse, uh, end of verse 8, you have kept your promises. And on and on and on it goes. God constantly doing good things for his people. Keeping his promises, hearing their cries, performing signs and wonders. God has done nothing but good for his people. He is not a wicked or spiteful God. He is not like the gods of the land, gods that demand human sacrifices, who are petty and cruel, whose own self-interest, have their own self-interest and use humans to get what they want. God is Yahweh. His name pops up again and again in these early parts. Yahweh, the promise-making, promise-keeping, personal God of Israel. And he is 
personally acting in ways that are good for his people, calling them, rescuing them, providing for them. He is a good father who knows how to give good gifts and good things to his children, good things that will benefit them and good things that will help them to be thankful for his provisions. But see how his people and their forefathers thanked God. Read with me verse 16 again. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. If you want to understand how messed up the people of God are, here is your key verse, or key verses. All right, so for the Israelites, they've been retelling their story. It's their story. Notice in verse 16 and 17 how they use this kind of inclusive language. They and our fathers, right? They are praying in a way that puts themselves right in the story, standing right alongside their rebellious forefathers. This story, this sort of prayer owns the guilt of the past. Now, why are they doing that? Right? Why are they owning the guilt of, for acts that they were not responsible for? Is this kind of like the rumor that spread during this week that actor Benedict Cumberbatch was going to be sued by the nation of Barbados? Uh, did you hear about this? See, this is what happened. Apparently, one of Benedict Cumberbatch's great-grandfathers was a slave owner and trader centuries ago. Right? He took and sold slaves from Barbados. So during the week, rumors were swelling that the government of Barbados was looking to see whether they could sue Cumberbatch for millions of dollars in reparations, all that Marvel money. Gimme, gimme. Now, apparently that's actually not true. The reporter um, took a quote really out of context. It's not going to happen. Because also, everyone knows, too, that this would be ridiculous. Cumberbatch was not responsible for what happened in the past, centuries ago. He was just born into his family. So it's the same thing here. Right. Same thing happening here in our passage. Most of the people who were back in Israel after exile, they were probably born in captivity or were too young to remember the rebellion. So what's going on here? The confession of their forefathers' sins is a recognition of what they need to turn from. What their fathers did in the past they need to presently avoid. What their fathers did is cause for somber reflection. Right? Look again at verse 16. It's up on the screen. I'm going to highlight a few things. Right? Firstly, they acted presumptuously. They knew the good things that God had done and provided them with, but in their pride and arrogance, they treated God without care or thought. They stiffened their neck. A picture of someone who is unwilling to turn, unwilling to turn aside from their disobedient direction. They did not obey his commandments. They refused to obey. See, it's not just that they failed to keep the laws or that they stumbled as they were trying. They outright rejected them. They knew 
what the law said not to do, and they went after it. They were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. And again, it's not just that they forgot what God had done for them. It's not like they were sitting around the campfire going, um, do you remember that story about, what's that thing about Egypt? You know, um, uh, oh, it's, oh, the, oh, yeah, the plagues, that's right. Um, 13 of them, 11, no, 10, 10 plagues. Now, they weren't doing that. They were intentionally putting it out of their minds as though they hit the delete button and emptied the trash can. And they appointed a leader to bring them back to Egypt. And you can read about this sorry story in the book of Numbers. The people rejected God's leading and guidance and refused to go into the promised land. Instead, they placed their hopes in returning to slavery in Egypt. Everything you want to know about what Israel were like is found here. They were a rebellious people, a people who uh, threw God's good provisions back at him, who spat in his face, who saw the fantastic miracles of how God had fully protected and carefully guided them and said, nah, uh, these foreign gods over here, they'll do a better job. I forget what Yahweh has done. Look over here. And they did it consistently. Throughout their long history, despite God's continued help, he sustained them in the wilderness in the face of their rejection. He multiplied their children. He helped them into the land and helped them to capture it. He helped them settle it. And at the end of verse 25, notice at the end of verse 25 that the people ate, they were filled, they became fat, and they delighted themselves in God's good gifts surrounding them. And in spite of all of that, they continued to disobey and rebel. And this rebellion goes further than what we read just then in verse 16 and 17. Pick it up in verse 26. They cast God's law behind their backs. Picture them picking it up and throwing it over their shoulders, throwing it away, treating it as though it was rubbish to be tossed. Carry on in verse 26. They killed God's prophets who were sent to warn them. Imagine if Israel was on like a loaded bus that was headed towards a cliff. Right? And a police officer jumps on board, like in the movie Speed. And instead of heeding the warnings and directions, they kill the police officer. And then another one jumps on board, and this one they throw off. And then another one jumps on board to try and warn them, and again they kill him. And over and over and over again, this is what Israel did. End of verse 26, they committed great blasphemies. They did things that utterly shamed and dishonored and cursed God's name. Their history was filled with an ugly collection of sins. Each successive king in their history seemed hell-bent on outdoing the previous king's evil. They worshipped false gods. They set up places of false worship, and some even went so far as burning their children as offerings to pagan gods like Moloch. And then in verse 27 and 28, we get this picture of the time of the judges, right? This time of the cycle of sin and rebellion, and then God sending judgment in the form of foreigners to oppress them. And then the people cry out to God, and in his unbelievable mercy, he sends saviors to set them free. But then after a time of rest, the cycle would start all over again, and it gets worse and worse and worse. 
And then you get the repetition of that rebellion in verse 29. You get the same words. They acted presumptuously. They did not obey. They sinned. They were stubborn and stiff-necked. This repetition driving home that the sin of Israel wasn't just a stumble. It wasn't just a failure. It wasn't a moment of weakness. It was a consistent pattern, a disease of their hearts passed on from generation to generation. Now, as we read through this prayer, there is something utterly amazing about it as well. See, as much as this prayer is a story of their rebellion, praying through the tragedy of their history, this prayer also highlights the utter, amazing faithfulness of God. Peppered throughout this prayer, in this kind of tug of war between the ugliness of Israel's sin, you get the unbelievable patience and mercy and grace of God. You can see it clearly from verse 20 onwards, right? In the wilderness, God gave them his spirit to teach them. Through the 40 years in the desert, he sustained them with food and water. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell from walking around. Verse 22, when they entered into the promised land, they took it. God helped them overcome those big giants that they were so afraid of. Giants like Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. He blessed them with children. Despite their rebellion, he helped them to take and subdue the land. Despite that cycle of sin in the time of Judges, he rescued them again and again. Why did God do all of that? Why did God put up with them. Actually, he didn't just put up with them. He served them and he helped them. Oh, to know why, you have to jump back to the final part of verse 17. Right? If the first bit of 16 and first bit of 17 tells you everything about Israel, then verse 17c tells you everything about God but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Let that wash over you. God is ready to forgive. Friends, here is the answer to the question at the start. What makes it safe to come to God in confession? And here's the answer. God is ready to forgive. He is not holding back forgiveness behind layers of red tape. He does not hold back forgiveness until you have done enough good to earn it. No... <laughs> Like your favorite uncle at Christmas or Chinese New Year, holding out the present or the red packet with two hands, he is ready to give it to you. God is gracious and merciful. My goodness, he is so giving undeserved kindness to his people, clearly. Holding back the judgment in mercy that they so deserved, clearly. God is slow to anger. And here, I cannot help it, I have to quote from the book, Gentle and Lowly, explaining what it means for God to be slow to anger. It means this, God doesn't have his finger on the trigger. 
It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his ire. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is spent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. I am quick to anger. God is not like me. God is slow to anger. The long retelling of Israel's history proves it. I am quick to anger and slow to love. My love must be provoked. But look again at the next phrase. God is abounding in steadfast love. He is overflowing in covenantal love. Picture a waiter coming over to you at a cafe, pouring you a glass of water, but they don't stop pouring when the glass is full. They keep pouring. And then they keep pouring, and now the table is wet. And you're like, whoa, 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 slow down. But now the carpet beneath you is soaking. But the waiter keeps on pouring. And you jump up now because now you're actually ankle deep in water. And the waiter keeps pouring more and more. And now you're waist deep in water. And you're wondering, how is this jug not empty by now? And the water keeps on rising and rising as the waiter keeps pouring out more and more water. This is what it means for God's steadfast love to abound. God loves his people not because they're lovable, not because they're beautiful, not because they're obedient. Their history proves them to be filthy, stinky, wretched, ugly people. God loves his people because he promises to love them. That is what steadfast love means. And that love flows and flows and flows until his people are saturated and submerged in it. And God is persistent. He did not forsake them. The persistent sin of his people cannot outdo his persistent love for them. Their persistent rebellion and unfaithfulness cannot outlive his goodness and faithfulness. Their rejection does not negate keeping his promise, his keeping his promises. Why is it safe to come to God in confession of sin? Because he's ready to forgive. At the slightest prick of a prayer, he floods with grace and mercy. At the acknowledgement of wrong, he repays with abounding love. Israel ends the prayer in verse 32 to 37, essentially with then a request for help. Have it read with me again, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. 
dear God, the God who we, who is great and mighty and awesome, the God who keeps his covenant, who is abounding in steadfast love, let not the hardship seem little to you. That's basically a humble request for help. Please remember us. Please act on our behalf for our good as you have before. Notice again the language of our throughout that verse. Our kings, our princes, our priests. The people are not saying, hey, we are a different generation than before. They're recognizing that the guilt of the past carries over to today. You see this in verse 36 as well. We are slaves today. Right now, they are living under judgment still. Not even the good fruit of their land is theirs to enjoy, but Persia continues to take it. They need help, and the only place they can go to for help is the one who brought judgment on them, the good and faithful God, their God, Yahweh. All they can do is throw themselves on his mercy. But... Here's a very big but. Will this request for help be heard? We throw a spanner in the works because God is good. His mercy and grace are limitless, but his patience is not. It has run out before. Will it run out again? Will Yahweh's feelings towards Israel change? Why would he continue to put up and serve such a people? When when they were in trouble in the past, they cried out to him for help and he heard them, but they kept on rebelling. What's going to be different this time? 400 years later, God would make sure that things would be different. He would act in the final and decisive way that proved he always acts for and the good of his people. He sends, the, the sending of Jesus proves definitively that God really is good. He really is patient with his people. The death and resurrection of Jesus prove that God forgives those who will receive the work of Jesus for them, all by faith. Trust. That is all. God is safe to confess our sins to. And anyone who trusts Jesus can know that safety of coming to God as their loving Heavenly Father. The Father who is so ready to forgive. The Father who is utterly gracious and merciful. The Father who isn't just slow to anger but never angry with his children ever again. Jesus has taken that all away. The father who floods his children with steadfast love. So what's holding you back from confessing your sins? What's holding you back from entering the story? Is it shame and fear of how God will see you? then look again to Jesus and know that God sees you the way he sees his son? Is it that you think highly of yourself and you think that you're good enough, a good enough person? Well, see that Jesus makes a mockery of your good life 
when you measure your good enough against his goodness, well, it's like comparing the clothes of a homeless person versus the clothes of royalty. Stop pretending you're fine. Come and embrace the one who has paid for your sins to give you new life. Do you hold back from confessing your sins because you do not fear God? You think that your sins are small or you just focus on your sins' impact on others? Well, again, see Jesus, the one who died for your sins, the one who paid the penalty in his blood. See that your sin is big enough that Jesus needed to die for all of them. Humble your heart. Fear God rightly. Do not presume upon his forgiveness. Remember that for those who trust and follow Jesus, anyone who confesses their sins finds a faithful God, just and able to forgive. A good God who will hear and is ready to show mercy. A safe place to bring all of our failures. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how astounding that you are ready to forgive. How awesome your graciousness, your mercy as wide as the east is from the west. How unfathomable that you are slow to anger. How unending is your abounding steadfast love. How in Christ you have not forsaken us. Let us draw near to your throne with confidence to bring before you our deepest and darkest moments of sin and rebellion to know that we are safe to do so, to know that you will forgive. And then help us to repent, to turn from that sin. We ask this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.